Leviticus 5, 1 through 13. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness or whatever sort his uncleanness may be, which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, and whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first that which is For the sin offering and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed and it will be forgiven him. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering, for that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar, With the offerings of the Lord by fire, it is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priest like the grain offering. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at these Old Testament sacrifices, we're reminded of how terrible sin is. And God, we are reminded of the cost for our forgiveness. And God, we are so grateful to be on this side of the cross and to see more clearly and to come to a reconciled God with a sacrifice that has been made not to be repeated and 
with a priest, a high priest that did not need to make sacrifice first for himself, with an offering that not only was undefiled and separate from sinners, but was of sufficient worth, infinite worth, to actually pay for all of the sin that we commit and to actually purify a people who are by nature defiled. God, we are grateful that we can come from what we are by nature to you and that you have moved us from darkness to light and that you have not only made us to be without guilt before you, but you have made us to be family, heirs. We come to a father. We praise you, Father, that Christ has rent the veil that separated us from you and that we are allowed to come into the throne room of your grace. We praise you for this new and living way. And God, we ask that though we stand on this side of the cross, that you would help us to to see and to appreciate and to have hearts that are full of gratitude as we look at these Old Testament realities and the shadows that were there foretelling and looking forward to what Christ would actually accomplish. God, we are grateful that you have preserved these things for us and that they serve to teach us. So God, we ask that you would do just that now and help us to worship you even as we consider these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. But last week we kind of looked at the nuts and the bolts of the sin offering and ran out of time. Tonight I want to give one word of clarification and then we're going to jump really into the application of that offering. First, the clarification. Last week I pointed out how easy it was to find yourself in a state of uncleanness. It was very easy. If you touched a dead animal, if you touched an object that an unclean person touched, if you had a baby... If you got romantic with your spouse, even that would make you unclean. Though without sin, unclean and unfit to come into the presence of God until you became clean again. But I may have given the impression that every one of those states of uncleanness required the sin offering. And that's not correct. Some did and some did not. For many of those things, especially the things that you know, kind of happen just because we are humans... Um, what was required was actually a bath. And at evening time, you became clean again. And there are situations where if it happened one way, it might require the sin offering. If it happened a different way, it might require the bath and waiting until evening. And one of the distinctions that appears to be between the two is perhaps length of time and whether you knew it or not. So if you didn't know it, as, as in Leviticus 4 and 5, this unintentional thing that later you come to realize happened you have probably been in a state of uncleanness for some time and there's the possibility that you've defiled other people unknowingly. And so perhaps that's the reason why the sacrifice there and not in other places. 
So without getting further into that, I just wanted to make sure that you understood not every one of those actions required a sin offering. If it did, you might be running you know, to the temple daily with some kind of animal. And how quickly do you deplete you know, your herd? Because you, you just by nature of being a human, you oftentimes became unclean as well as the other things that you did unintentionally. And maybe you did it unintentionally and found out immediately. Maybe it took a while. But just all kinds of situations. But what I really was trying to impress upon you is that while uncleanness is not always tied to a specific sin or to your specific sin, it was always a reminder of the fact that we are a fallen and depraved people and are naturally in a state of uncleanness. And something has to be done to bring us into a state of cleanness so that we can approach a holy God. And so with that in mind, uh, let's jump into this application. The first thing I really want to hit if I haven't sufficiently already is how easily we do sin. We might like to think that we are the kind of people that don't sin as easily. You know, some people may be more given to wickedness, us not so much. But if we think like that, we do deceive ourselves. Think about these verses from 1 John that should be very familiar to you. 1 John 1 verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So far so good. But then, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We we do sin. We have sinned and we are people who need cleansing. He speaks not only here of being faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from unrighteousness. This idea of cleansing us from the pollution of sin. John, as he writes this, does not have a category, leave room for a category for, I hadn't sinned, I'm blameless. Well, if you say that, you're a liar. God dwells in light. We are a people who sat in darkness. Thankfully, God has worked to open our eyes so that we might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that we might receive forgiveness of sins And an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.13 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. But by nature, we are in darkness and we are sinful. Job 15 verses 15 and 16 says, Behold, he, God, puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. We sin easily and oftentimes unknowingly, unintentionally. Sometimes we do the the wrong thing with the best of motives. Have you ever 
been maybe looking for an address and you ran a stop sign and you didn't even see it. And someone says, well, you just ran the stop sign. You didn't intend to. Maybe you are very conscientious about traffic laws, but you ran right through it and didn't even see it until someone called your attention to it. Have you ever been on a piece of property? Maybe someone told you, like, you can go hunting on their property. And so you go, but you're not real clear about where the boundary lines are. And you get over onto someone else's property and you've trespassed because you're not clear about where the lines are. But you crossed the line. You didn't intend to. We could think, though, also about uh, when, you know, there are times we think we're being loving to someone who's hurting and we speak to them and we're trying to comfort them. But what we actually do is give them words that hurt them because it's not, you know, it's not really truth or it's not the best thing that they need to hear at the moment. We give them weakening words so that in their situation, they're not prone to run to Jesus as they should, but they're prone to do something else. And we may have been very well intentioned trying to help the hurt of someone, but in fact, we did not help them. There's so many ways that we do the wrong thing with the best of motives. And there are times, though, that we do the right thing with the wrong motive. The right activity, but we shouldn't have, you know, it's all for the wrong reason. Have you ever been guilted into doing something that you should do? You didn't want to do it, and you're kind of guilted into it. And maybe in the middle of it, you realize, I, you know, this is something I should have done all along. I'm glad I'm here after all. But the truth is, you arrived there for all the wrong reasons. You're guilted into it. There are times we make comments that are unloving. Maybe we we're trying to be humorous and it just you know, fell so flat and hurt someone. And then there are moments of selfishness when we might not even realize we're being selfish, but we are. Looking back, maybe we see it. And because we're being selfish, we're not considering other people. We're not looking out for the best interest of others. We're looking out for number one. And in just a moment, we've acted in this way that was selfish and sinful. But then sadly, you know, there's the unintentional sins. But sadly, we also so often willingly make sinful choices. We kind of do a, a cost-benefit analysis, you know. We think... We look at something and we think, okay, I'm not supposed to do this, but you know, I don't think the, the consequences are going to be that bad and we make a willful choice to plunge ahead into sin kind of arrogantly, presumptuously. And then when we realize, okay, yeah, I just did that, we start trying to justify ourselves and mitigate it in our own mind so that the guilt isn't so bad. Am I the only one that's ever done something like that? We sin so, so easily. Are you, even now, justifying some sinful choices? And rather than running to God with them and confessing them, you hang on to them and you try to cover it up and mitigate it and make it seem less than it is. And as you do that, what may have begun as unintentional moves into presumptive. 
when the person described in Leviticus 4 and 5 here with these unintentional sins became aware of their sin, they were to confess it and make provision for it, an offering. They were not to leave it, pretend it didn't happen. But are you dealing with your sinful choices by running to Christ and confessing them or trying to cover them up? Uh, A second thing I want to um, draw our attention to, I mentioned it a bit last week, but I really want to make application of it this week, and that is the idea of collective guilt. As we saw, we can be guilty personally, but we can also be guilty collectively or, or corporately. We can be guilty as, as a nation. We can be guilty as, as a church, as a family, as a, you know, whatever kind of group we might find ourselves in. We can be guilty within that group. And many times the, the corporate guilt that we fall under is a guilt that we're led into by our leaders. So Leviticus 4 addresses specifically the sin of the priest and the sin of the leader as well as the sin of the congregation and how those things are to be dealt with. I mean, you can think about how, as, as a nation, we can be led into situations. We can be led into war. And we may disagree and think this is not a war we want to be in, but we don't have a choice. War is declared, and now we are a nation at war with everything that comes with that, including whatever ramifications might happen if we lose. We are, you know, we're, we're Americans, and so we're, we're in it. We can also see how we can experience a collective guilt because of unjust laws. And certainly we can look around and see quite a few of those. Some that have been ours for many years and some not as many years. There is one biblical example of this. that um, In the early pages of the book of Joshua, you remember Achan takes something that he's not supposed to take. It's banned during the battle of Jericho. And because he took that, guilt came upon the entire nation, even though no one but Achan knew that he had taken it. And so they go into battle at Ai, which should have been, in their mind, a much easier battle than the previous one. And they're soundly defeated. And God has to bring it to their attention that they're sinning the camp. They don't know it. And yet they're guilty. I did mention last week the Gibeonites and, and the sin that they experienced there as the, the leaders lead them into this covenant that God had forbidden. And it, they were deceived into it. But still they're there. And the nation is guilty as a whole because of the sin of the leaders. Later, in the time of David, they find themselves under three years of famine because Saul had broken that covenant. This is, uh, I think, a hard concept for us to get our minds around sometimes. We are a very individualistic people. We don't really like the idea of being lumped in with other people and being considered guilty because they did something. You know, I didn't do it. They did it. And that rankles. We um, have trouble even with the idea that we're guilty because of the sin of Adam. And yet this is biblical reality. 
as our nation becomes increasingly divided, it's very easy to point to the fault of the other side and say, well, it's them and their fault and they did it. And because we don't identify with them, we think, you know, we're somehow immune. But that doesn't line up with what the scripture teaches us. And so, it's not only this... um, that this kind of thinking is unnatural to us as, as citizens. I also find it to be the, the case kind of personally. In the sense of, I, I prefer to feel immune. I prefer to think that I'm somehow insulated from the problems and guilt that others have brought on us. I would rather kind of see myself as a silo, you know, and not a part of this group as a nation... So that I don't have to think about the guilt or the problem as if it's mine. But again, it's just not the reality. It's a false view that leads to greater sin. And the problem is not a problem only as a nation. It it can be a problem as a church or as a family. And the guilt that comes to us collectively or corporately is not one that we can pretend does not exist Or that we can ignore, and because we ignore it, you know, it goes away. We cannot cover it and expect God to bless us. Third is this idea of proportional guilt. You remember in Leviticus 4 that Leviticus 4 is divided up among those different categories of people. So you have the priest, when they sin, here is the sacrifice or the offering that they're to bring and the, the detail or the ritual that goes with that. And it's different than what the common person, the common Israelite would do. But also the civic leader is different than if the whole congregation sins. And so there, there were different sacrifices, different levels of sacrifice, different expenses associated with that. And I believe part of that is because there was a different level of guilt. And you might say, well, why is that? That is, this... And I think it's tied partially to what we've just looked at with the collective guilt. If the corporate body is led into sin by its leaders, then surely those leaders bear a greater responsibility. Even though the entire camp or the entire congregation is guilty, the leaders bear a greater guilt than the rest of the body. And in Leviticus 4, while the civic leader bore a greater responsibility than the common Israelite, the priest bore the greatest responsibility in those levels that were laid out there. Spiritual leader. Concerned not just for the, the, the care of them as, as a citizen, but their souls. Leaders can bring guilt upon people as, you know, there's the possibility of leading them into error. There's the possibility of leading them into sin. There's a failure to speak the truth that can have a devastating effect upon those people. Think about in the book of um, 1 Samuel, during the time when Eli was the priest and his sons were such wicked men and Eli refused to deal with him. Do you not think that the congregation of people as they came to the temple to bring offerings to worship God are unaffected 
by the sin of Eli and his sons. Well, surely they would have been affected. Perhaps even somewhat reticent to come to worship at the temple because, or the tabernacle because of you know, the activity and the actions of, of Eli's sons who were so wicked. Or last week we talked about during the time of Josiah when the law was rediscovered. And as God speaks to Josiah and tells him that he is, you know, he, God favors him. Um, there's a guilt that rests upon the people. And yet, there are, they are a people who have not heard the truth for years. I mean, they find the law and dust it off and they're shocked to read it and see what it says. Does the silence of the people who've gone before, who failed to read that law, not bear a greater responsibility? Those people who lived during the time of Josiah, guilty, but the failure to teach them the truth, the failure to point out sin, surely those leaders bore a greater responsibility. This is not just an Old Testament idea. We see it in the New Testament as well. We get to it actually this weekend, don't we? James chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. You're in a position to point others to truth. You're in a position to to lead them into error. You're in a position to, uh, to help them or to hinder them. So don't be quick to that. Understand there's a stricter judgment. That reality also, I believe, is why in both Titus and Timothy, in the qualifications given for leadership, those qualifications have more to do with character than gifting. Here's a person who has the ability both by word but also by life to point you to the Lord or to give you false ideas about walking with the Lord. And so gifting is important, but far more important, the character. I certainly feel the potential for hurting others. I would imagine the other elders do as well. And I would ask you to pray for us. We're not infallible. We are not perfect. We're quite capable of doing dumb things, you know. Pray for us. Pray that God would deliver us from evil, that he would not lead us into temptation. Pray that we would follow hard after Christ. But I feel it not only in that way, I also feel it as a husband, as a father, as a friend. Have you ever led a friend into sin? Fourth, sin is described here as an uncleanness, as a stain. It's not just a, a stain like, you know, I've I, I, I got grass stains on my new clothes. It's not that. It is an oozing, putrefying, polluting sore. I want you to think about this in a couple of ways. One, as sin defiles us, which is true, sin defiles us, it stains, it pollutes, it corrupts. And yet, We can't think of sin here as just an external force. It's something that exists outside of us, you know, uh, weighing on us. And somehow we got, you know, we got a common cold. We we touched the wrong object. We didn't wash our hands well. And we got, 
um, we called it. It's not that. It's not so much like a cistern as, as a spring. It's something that flows from within us. We do have hearts that are like idol factories, producing idol after idol. We, you know, you, you kind of stamp one out and another one pops up in its place if you're not really careful. You can see the same kind of effect with pride. Clyde Cranford used to say that, that pride has a thousand faces, you know. You can look at pride as a very arrogant, boastful kind of pride, but you can also see it as the self-loathing, the self-pitying. It shows itself up in so many ways. And you can see one and be astonished that that came out of you and, and seek to repent and put a death blow to it only to see it pop up in another form. And if you're not watching, you may miss that one. We are a people who are constantly being defiled by sin, not only the sin around us, but the sin that pops out of us, that comes from us. Another way that we sometimes say it is that we're not sinners chiefly because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. We, we were not innocent until one day when we sinned. We are born in sin. And we choose to sin. And we sin daily. And our guilt and our corruption multiplies. And our corruption is seen in this, this uncleanness produced by our sin-riddled bodies. Again, the cleanness required of the Israelites was not all the direct action of sin, but it was a constant reminder that we are an unclean people. And this uncleanness so often comes from within us. And if we would come before God, a remedy must be supplied. But then, secondly, this sin defiles others. And here you might think about it as, as more of an external force. It defiles us, but it also defiles those around us. You know, there are those, those sins that we can kind of categorize and we think, I'm not going to do that because I see it would hurt others. It would hurt me. I can see how the consequences would hit me and it would hurt someone else. I, I don't want to hurt that person. I'm not going to do that. But have you ever kind of categorized in your own mind, there's this sin and it won't hurt anybody. It won't hurt anyone else. And maybe because it's in secret or whatever, we think it's small enough or no one would know and it will not affect anyone around me. It is okay. But that kind of sin does not exist. Others are always affected by our sin. Even if it's only indirectly. As a Christian, when you sin... Are you really capable of giving to others what you owe them? Husband, how can you love your wife as Christ loves the church while you cherish sin in your heart? Wife, how can you really submit to a husband and love him as you should when you cherish sin in your heart? And the same could be said to parents or child. But the question could also be asked to the church member. You exist in a body in which every member is important. There are no unimportant members. And you cannot sin in such a way that the body is completely unaffected. And so, how can you possibly consider other people as more important than yourself while you're selfishly cherishing sin? 
How can you seek the good of others, seeking to encourage them and build them up while you're at war with God? Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 about their arrogance, their boasting, their sin. And he said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You need to stop because you're endangering the whole body. The little bit of leaven is, is going to spread. So sin is like an infection. An infection not dealt with can become very serious. It can become gangrene. So you see a person who has a limb that has gangrene, and what's the solution? Oftentimes it's to amputate, cut it off. Why? Because if you don't cut it off, it's going to spread to the rest of the body and it's going to kill the entire body. Sometimes a person sins in such a way and they will not deal with that sin and church discipline becomes necessary. Why? Because here's a sin that can infect the entire body if it's not dealt with. And so a limb has to be cut off. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Jude writes about having mercy on some who, who are defiled. We don't possess or have access outside of Christ. We cannot get the cleaning agents that are necessary to remove this kind of stain. I told you years ago now about um, going into the little boy's bedroom at the time. We had new carpet, and there were these ink blotches all over the carpet. They had found these bottles of ink and climbed through their bedroom window because they knew they were not supposed to have them. And I opened them up and, of course, spilled it on this carpet. It was new. Did I say that? It was new. <laughs> uh, like, we'd lived in this house forever, and we finally got new carpet, and they spilled Black ink and huge blotches on this carpet. It's like, we got a lot of that up, but you didn't get it all up. How do you how do you get all that? How do you remove the stain that sin is? Have you ever? Maybe you had like a dress shirt on and you got an ink stain on it or something. It's not coming out. Maybe in a situation where you can't get, you know, you can't go and change immediately. You put a sports coat on over it, you know, like you can't see that in my pocket now. See, and maybe you feel awkward the rest of the time, but you kind of cover it up. Or maybe you have a, a stain on your carpet and it's in a spot where you can put a runner. And the runner covers that spot and nobody knows it but you. You know it, but no one else knows it because you've covered it up. 
But you can't cover up this stain. And every attempt to cover up this stain only brings more guilt upon you. What do you do with it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. What can for sin atone? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's no amount of regret. There's no amount of religion. There's no amount of trying to anesthetize yourself, you know, with entertainment or whatever else you might want to run after to try to forget and pretend it's not there that will deal with this stain. But God has provided a solution for this stain. The bulls, the goats, these animals, they only look forward to the solution. They, they said a solution is coming, but they weren't the solution. If they were the solution, then Christ did not need to come. But Christ has come. And He not only removes the guilt of our trespasses, but He removes the pollution, the stain of our uncleanness. Many of you have felt the defiling effects of sin. Conviction comes and you feel guilt, but you also feel the filth of it. Perhaps some of you even now, you don't know Christ, but the Spirit is working in you and you know there's a dirtiness about your soul because you are a sinner. What do you do with that guilt? You take it to Jesus. You move to the next thing. And that is confession. In Leviticus 5 verse 5. Leviticus 5 verse 5. So it shall be. When he becomes guilty in one of these. That he shall confess that in which he has sinned. This is the first time that the word confession. Confess, confess, confession occurs in the Old Testament or in the Bible. I believe it was occurring before then as you see uh, people putting their hands on the heads of those sacrifices and there's kind of a transfer taking place recognizing this animal's dying for my sin, dying for me because that's what I deserve. I think confession was taking place in that. But this is the first place that the word itself occurs. The verb, the Hebrew verb, confess, comes from a stem that means to throw open or to reveal, to expose. And interestingly, the idea of exposing or revealing is translated in the Old Testament as either confess or praise. Depending upon the focus of the exposing. So, if man's nature is exposed... What's seen, what's revealed is sin. And what's necessary is confession. But if you're looking at God, if He reveals Himself, then what's revealed is glorious. And what is required is praise. But for us, 
Sin is exposed. So confession is an exposure or a revealing of what is true. It's not concealing it. It's bringing it out into the open. Not as though God didn't know it before you brought it out in the open, but you're acknowledging, you're owning it. Remember, especially these sins were sins that were unintentional. It's been brought to your attention. And so in this idea of confession was owning that sin. Yes, I did that. And though I didn't know I did it, and I hadn't felt guilty about it, I did that. And the guilt is mine. Psalm 32, 5. The psalmist says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I won't hide it. I'll confess it. I acknowledge it. I bring it to you, God. So this this confession is a recognition of the culpability that is mine for the deed I've done, even if I didn't realize before I'd done it. The confession includes repentance. It's a necessary component. And it is the outflow of a heart that's contrite and broken over the sin that's been revealed. Now, Again, because these were unintentional sins, even unrealized sins until someone, you know, somehow it's been exposed to them, it is important to, to note that knowledge of sin was not the determination of guilt. The confession comes when you know that you've sinned and then you own the fact that you did it and that the guilt is yours, but the sin existed and the guilt existed before you knew you had even done anything. Knowing that you sin did not make it sin. It was already sin. Now you know it. But also, feeling guilty about the sin does not make you guilty or not guilty. The fact that before you knew you had sinned, you didn't feel guilty about it. I mean, why would you? You didn't know. It doesn't mean the guilt didn't exist. And so it's really not important so much how you feel about it. That, that doesn't make you guilty or not guilty. If we think of guilt only as a subjective thing, I need to feel guilty before I can really confess to God. I need to feel the weight of my guilt before I can do anything about it. Then I don't think that's really the, what we see in Scripture. We often do feel guilty, but... Whether you feel the guilt or not, it is yours. There's an objective standard. There's a law that's been broken. And there's a lawgiver who's offended whether you feel guilty or not. In fact, we are so sinful and we can become so callous about our sin, so insensitive to the working of the Holy Spirit, it's quite possible for us to sin and feel no pain at all. Knowing we've sinned. That doesn't mean we're absolved from guilt. It just means our conscience has been seared. So 
the seriousness of sin or the evil of sin is not determined by my knowledge or understanding of sin or how I feel about my sin or my guilt. You can consider your, small, your sin a small matter or something that's inconsequential. And yet you have transgressed God's law and he's offended. As soon as this person became aware of their sin, again, it was something that needed to be dealt with. They're to confess their sin. They're to prepare an offering to come and, and, and make atonement through this system that God had prepared. And we don't bring a sin offering. Christ has become our sin offering. He's died once for all. There are no more sacrifices to be made. And yet, there is confession of sin to be made. Again, that passage in 1 John. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that passage tells us that we're a sinful people. If we say we haven't sinned, we're liars. But then it tells us what to do with those sins. In this Old Testament economy, the sacrifice brought to the altar was not sufficient if the person did not confess their sin. The ritual was not enough. You could come and go through all the externals of the sacrifice and follow them to the letter but also required was confession. You had to own the sin. And so if you came without really owning the sin as your own, without repentance, then you came to the sacrifice as though it were kind of a formula or even magic. Here are the elements of this potion and you put them together and poof, sin absolved. But God was not satisfied with that. There are times we see Him telling the people to stop offering sacrifices because they offered them in this external kind of way. It's also possible for us, isn't it, to take 1 John 1.9 and use it in the same kind of magic formula kind of way. Hear these words. I do what I want to. I spit out these words and whoop, I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. No, we are to own the sin, to repent, to expose it to God. As far as the sin goes, as far as it's known, I suppose. Um, and it's not that there's salvation in your words. It's not that your words or your confession adds merit to Christ's sacrifice. It's not that at all, but it is that God is rescuing you from not just the guilt and the pollution of your sin, but from sin itself. He's rescuing you. And Christ's blood is not a cheap trick. It's not a, a magic potion. One more thing. And that is, you know, in these sacrifices, we do see how terrible sin is. They really highlight that. But they also highlight the grace of God. And we see it in this sacrifice as well. God's grace given. And it is a grace that is, is always previous. And what I mean is that God's not reacting with grace. You know, I sin and God reacts with grace because you know, He wasn't expecting that. But He has already provided for them before 
they sin. He's provided for us. He already has the sacrifice of Christ in mind before we're created. His grace, in that sense, is previous. He, in grace, provides for us before we have transgressed His law. He provided for this sacrifice. A sacrifice for people, people like us, who are so sinful that we sin and offend God without intention. Sometimes with intention, but even without intention, unknowingly. Hidden faults that David prays and asks God to acquit him of. And because sin is such an ever-present problem, God provided not only a sacrifice to make sure that you understand there's a way to come to me and to be cleansed from this pollution, but He does it in such a way that even the most destitute person in Israel, or even the sojourner who comes through Israel and has nothing, is able to come with this kind of offering. The peace offering required a significant offering. And not everyone could bring it. But this offering, anybody can bring this offering. Look again at Leviticus chapter 5. After uh, calling for a goat or a sheep in verses 6 and 7, it tells us that, verse 6, He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat. Uh, Verse 7, But if he cannot afford a lamb... And he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sent two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So like the burnt offering, there are birds that you can bring. And he describes that. But then he goes further. And then in verse 10. No. Verse 11. If his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering for that which he has sent, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. If you can't even afford two birds, you can bring this small amount of flour. Anybody in Israel had access to that. How? Well, Leviticus chapter 23 tells us that when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to take The harvest from the corners. You're not to to glean the harvest. If you are going along picking and you miss something, you don't go back and get it. You leave it so that a person who's in a situation like this, who's destitute, they can come and they can gather food. But in gathering that, they also have just gathered what is necessary for this sin offering. If you don't have any other means, you have this. And... After each one of these, God talks about how he accepts that, how the person's forgiven. And in the same way, verse 10 at the end, pardon me, verse 13. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, which he's committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priest like the grain offering. It will be forgiven him. Just like he'd brought the sheep or the goat or the two pigeons The fact that he's destitute and can only go and glean from someone else's field doesn't lessen God's mercy toward this person. Then I want you to consider how God has provided for your sin. Not just the the gleanings of a field that you don't own, but He has given to you Christ. 
He has given to you His own Son. And He has made atonement so that you can be forgiven. Sin is the transgression of the law. It stirs God's wrath. And that wrath needs to be appeased. So God has provided for Himself a sacrifice to appease His wrath. The big word for that is propitiation. But sin is also an uncleanness. It is a stain that must be removed. You and I need to be purified. And God has provided the sacrifice necessary to clean us up, to bring us to Himself. Expiation. Because He's done that, we come to Him freely. We come to Him often, confessing our sin, not because we need a new sacrifice, but to keep short accounts. To stay in fellowship with Him. To have our feet washed from the defilement of our sin. You remember in John 13, Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. And He got to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Christ Jesus is the sacrifice the Father has provided to appease the wrath of God, to cover, to to deal with our sin and the wrath that rightfully should be poured out on us. And Christ Jesus is the sacrifice that the Father has provided to remove the pollution that stains us and makes us unfit to come into His presence so that we can come freely and boldly knowing that we've been cleaned, cleaned by the blood of Christ. Christ.